This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we brought you Pastor Paul Gradell's story when we featured some of the episodes of the Great Comeback series, where Speaker of the House Paul Ryan went around the country visiting private citizens with private efforts to help folks turn around their lives, from drugs, poverty, absentee fatherhood, you name it. And one of those people he visited was Pastor Gradell in Elyria, Ohio, and Pastor Gradell, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Lee. Now, I can only imagine that you must have never imagined that you'd be hanging out with the Speaker of the House, let alone even being a pastor. And for those of us who missed our story on you and the former drug addict, you helped Greg Bradford. Tell us how you Correct. got to where you are today before we discuss our topic today, the government getting in the way of private citizens helping private citizens. I was an addict uh, that struggled uh, for a number of years, from my teenage years all the way through my 20s and into my early 30s. Eventually, I got into heroin, uh, shooting uh, heroin intravenously. Um, and through that, you know, my, my life just fell apart really quickly. Uh, the, the miracle of it is I remained married. I have a wonderful wife. We're celebrating 34 years of marriage uh, this month. But, um, yeah, if somebody would have told me 25 years ago that I'd be a pastor and, and have, a, have a church and, and the Speaker of the House be visiting, I, I would have laughed at him. My life was broken, and, um, you know, I came into a relationship with Christ and uh, turned my life around. I can't take credit for that. I give all credit to him. And through a series of events, ended up opening up a church in South Elyria, which is uh, poverty-stricken, and uh, great people. Uh, just needing a, a little bit of a helping hand. And um, Greg Bradford, one of the people that we first started helping, even before our church was started, but we started a church in South Elyria in 2010, ended up purchasing a large school building. Half of it is the church, and the other half we want to turn into a, a home for struggling women. And so you were, you were helping Paul, and you were doing what, well, what your God had commanded to do, which was to help help the least of these and to help everyone in the end and to serve and love folks before we get into that story talk about what got you off the drugs i mean what was that defining moment in your life where you said i'm not doing this anymore yeah you know one of the defining moments i had two of them uh one of the defining moments is I, i walked into my son's room when he was six months old and i just got done shooting dope and uh i walked in there i saw this little guy in a crib and I remember just standing over him and, and begin to weep uh, because I knew that this little guy deserved the best father that any that anybody could be, and and I knew the man that I was. I was I was an addict, and you know, just because somebody's addicted doesn't mean that they're a hopeless case or they're a bad person. Nobody nobody. I, that was not my goal to be an addict, um, but the reality of of it, it was I was, and I, I didn't know where to go for help. Back then, there was even less treatment centers, but I did end up going into a treatment center. Um, I did 30 days in that. When I, when I got out, I actually got indicted on some drug charges. Um, by the miracle of God, I, I pled out to a six-month, uh, mis- there was a misdemeanor case, uh, pled down from felonies, six months probation and $500 fine. 
but I still struggled because, uh, you know, I was, I was free physically from the drugs, but emotionally all the pain and the scarring was still there. And uh, a number of years later, in 1994, uh, I came into a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, and, and that relationship um, set me free, and I haven't struggled since. And so I believe uh, with all my heart that, you know, God is the answer, um, but that we are called by God to help people. Um, I, I believe that if, if a church is in a community, then the community should benefit from that church being there. So that's the whole model of what we do. Our scripture verses is Matthew chapter 25, 35, and 36. You mentioned it. When when you feed uh, the least of these, you, you feed me, is what Christ says. And so true. And, and Pastor, what were you doing at that time for a living? You know, you knew you were an addict. You knew you didn't want to be this kind of father. Talk just a little bit about the grip this holds on people. For anybody who has an addict son or an addict daughter, walk them through it so they can understand that you were an addict. Uh, and what were you doing for a living at that time? Well, you know, I started out, I, I, uh, I, I graduated from high school. I had a pretty uh, normal IQ. I was fairly intelligent. I was a hard worker. I became a welder and worked in a few factories and a machine shop. I got married when I was 23 years old to my wife that I'm still with, a beautiful lady named Cindy. Uh, we got married in Vegas, and life was good at the beginning, although, you know, I had those party party times on the weekends. But eventually, it just continued to uh, go down, and I got into pills, uh, and that's how most people get addicted to heroin nowadays. I got exposed to uh, Percocets and Percodans, Vicodins. Uh, I was a power lifter, and, and so I experienced some injuries, and, you know, the doctor prescribed those, and, and I was just the type of person that, you know, just couldn't say no once I had it. And I got to the point, uh, you know, I held a job up until the uh, last couple years of my addiction. I was a functioning addict, um, but the last couple years when I got into shooting heroin, I got into it because I could not get enough pills to sustain my, my addiction. And heroin at the time was just starting to transition over where it was beginning to be more pure and cheaper. And it was cheaper than the pills, and you could always find heroin on the streets where, unlike sometimes, pills would dry up. You know, the last thing I thought I would ever be doing is sticking a needle in my arm. But when you're so dope sick from uh, withdrawn from uh, opiates, you you come to a point in your life where it's it's the most desperate experience you can ever experience. And, and uh, again, like I said, I was not a hardcore guy. I, I, I was a guy that loved my wife. I, I, I ran with some pretty rough guys, but the reality is you, you don't realize what your bottom is and your potential for a bottom until you've been physically addicted to some type of, of substance. It takes people down such a dark road, but there's still people. I don't, I don't care if an addict is an addict, he's still a person, and he deserves a helping hand. So true. No matter how many times he stumbles. So true, Pastor. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that helping hand. Pastor Paul Gridell's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Pastor Paul Gridell, his story and his church's story, and the story of the city that church is in, Elyria, Ohio. And Pastor, before we get into the story of what happened to your building, tell us a little bit about your town. We've been reading about these rural towns in America and what I call the post-industrial age uh, towns that had a manufacturing base and then lost it. Some would actually call it Trump country. That is, the areas of the country where President Donald Trump did well. And it turns out there's a, 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 a lot of people in this country who were not being listened to. Their problems were not being heard. Uh, talk about this place and this city, because it sounds like it's one of those places. It is very much the model of that place. Uh, Elyria is about 50,000 people. Uh, it's not a huge town. It's just south of Lorraine. Now, Lorraine was a huge manufacturing, had a shipyard in the 70s, I believe 60s and 70s, large manufacturing steel mills. And Elyria was kind of like a suburb of Lorraine back number of years ago. And um, Elyria itself had manufacturing. Now a large majority of the manufacturing has left. Uh, the area of South Elyria that we're in right now is about 50% poverty rate, and there's just not jobs available to the people. And the, and the jobs that are available are service jobs, you know, $10 an hour with no benefits. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of people that uh, are on assistance here in Elyria, and um, there's a great need. A lot of it comes down to lack of employment. The other thing I just want to touch on this real quick is, you know, we have stigmatized addicts to the point where we think throwing them in prison or throwing them in jail is the answer. And then we give them a felony record and we make it so difficult for a person to get out of the lifestyle of drugs uh, because when they get out, uh, many of them were, you know, small time dealers that were selling to support their habit. And now that they have a felony record, uh, they want to change their life. They want to get a job. We, we work with people to get jobs, but that felony conviction is, and, and now with the Internet, it is so hard to, to get away from your past. We've created a society that is not hireable, even when people want to get out of that lifestyle. It's so true, and uh, we're glad you're bringing that point up, and we focus on this on our American stories because we tell the stories the media just aren't telling or they're not interested in because they're not quite sensational enough. But my goodness, right. if it's happening to your family, if it's happening to your town, it's news and you want the rest of the country to hear about it. And folks, it's coming to a town near you. If the main business in your town pulls out, what happens to the men and women in that town? And when there are no jobs, there is no hope. And when there's no hope, people turn to other means. We can't oh, underestimate the power and the dignity of work. Paul, now talk, talk to us about this uh, elementary school that you were trying to convert into part church and part rehab center. And what, what did you run up against, and how can we help? Well, you know, we, uh, we began leasing a building in 2012, which was the school that we ended up purchasing. Um, so in 2012, we leased at a very reasonable rate. We were doing the school uh, system a, a favor also because when it was vacant, the windows were being broken out of it. And so we came in and did some improvements. The windows started stopped getting broken. I think a lot of the children that were breaking them now come to church to walk here from the neighborhood. Um, but um, in 2015, the school board decided that they wanted to sell it and put it up for auction. Uh, we ended up getting it. Uh, we got uh, 62,000 square feet on seven acres of land for $50,000. 
and um, that was that's just a miracle. Uh, the building's in great shape. Um, but what we didn't know was we were changing the use of the building, and when we changed the use of the building from a place of education to a place of assembly, it completely changes the fire code and, and building uh, code requirements. Uh, so last summer, um, they found us in violation of those those codes, and we ended up having to hold all of our services uh, for three months uh, in the summer. Uh, luckily, it was in the summer, and, and we rented a big tent, put it in the parking lot. So every Sunday, you'd find 250 people, a couple hundred people out there worshiping, and uh, we do a Friday night service also. Friday nights is a hard night for people that are trying to get off and out of the party style lifestyle. And uh, so we have Friday services available, and they're, they're quite popular. Uh, so Friday and Sunday, we were out there in the parking lot for three months while we were trying to uh, work with the city. Um, the improvements that they want to be done, we have now got a, a temp- temporary occupancy permit. Uh, the, the improvements that they want cost about $72,000. Um, we have installed, we replaced all the interior doors with fire rated doors. Uh, that cost us $42,000. Uh, we are in the process of trying to pay for those doors now. Uh, we still have a fire alarm system that we have to install that's going to be another 20 some thousand dollars. So right now we are trying to raise, and what this has done, Unfortunately, uh, all the progress that we were trying to, to make in Creation House, we actually don't call it a, a rehab. We call it a home. Um, uh, all the, the resources that were going for that has now gone to the church um, um, efforts, not resources, but efforts to get the church back into uh, code according to the city. So the, the emphasis on Creation House has taken a second seat to trying to get this occupancy permit, full-time occupancy, for the church building so that we can move forward in opening up the home of Creation House. In the end, what, what's, the, uh, what's the amount you're looking to raise? What's the amount you need? Paul? We need to raise about $75,000. So we are uh, asking people to, to make, <clears throat> make donations. We make it very easy to give, and any amount is appreciated. Something I want to mention, too, we... We feed over 500 people a week out of this building. We, we opened up a food pantry, and uh, 500 people come through these doors on Fridays to get bags of groceries for their families. And it's a safety net because there's, there's never enough. When it, if somebody's on assistance and they've got you know three children, uh, the society thinks that that person is cheating the system. I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that, you know what, the government keeps people in, in bondage because they give them just enough and make it difficult to get off of it. And so we're the safety net. And we encourage people, you know, to be the head, not the tail, that you can start your own business. And and uh, don't put your trust in the government. Put your trust in the Lord. And, um, and then we go out uh, every week and feed over 100 people that are homeless. Um, so this building is used to benefit the community, and the, and the community uh, benefits quite greatly from it and and if this building was to shut down or we're we're forced to go outside the the tragedy of that last year was we had to shut down that pantry um when we had to go out in the parking lot and pastor Um, what's the email address what's the website that people can go to 
Yeah, you, if you go to beyondthewallschurch.com, there's a donate button on there, but you can also go there and just see uh, the ministries that, that this church provides to the community. And it's not restricted to people that come to this church. We, we help people no matter what. If, if they come in the doors or they make a phone call, we'll, we'll try to get them help or to a place where they can get help. So it's beyondthewallschurch.com. And if you want to see the home that we want to open up for women, which will be no cost to them, nothing, just desire to get out of that lifestyle, you can go to creationhouse.org. And both of those websites have donate buttons on them. We also have another way to give. This is really cool. Thank you to technology, and I have great people on staff. Otherwise, I'd still be uh, operating in, in the 20th century. But they can just dial 84321 on their phone, on their cell phone, and text in the amount that they want to give. They'll be prompted to set up an account, but all you got to do is, is text in 84321. Get that on your keypad, and uh, it'll be prompted for the steps there. Well, Pastor, thanks for all that you do. We'd like to check in with you every uh, three months or so just to see what's happening. Tell us a few stories about what's going on, and offline, I'd love to talk to you about how we can help. That's beyondthewallschurch.com, creationhouse.org, or just hit the numbers 84321 on your cell phone and text in a donation. This is Lee Habib, Pastor Paul Grodell's story, the city of Elyria, Ohio's story, here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and for the next half hour, we're going to do something really important. We're going to be talking about the top 10 sodas in the world, with a special report from our producer, Jesse. But first, to set the stage and to illustrate our love for soda pop on this show, we're going to go back and listen to an off-the-air rant that took place here in the studio. I was telling the team about a restaurateur I knew back in the day who was a perfectionist when it came to the ice he would serve in his drinks to customers. The conversation then spilled over into a passionate discussion of my personal love for Coca-Cola. Let's take a listen. Coke had to be cold before it was poured under the ice. It's warm Coke mm. on ice tastes different. And then the ice changes the kind of the Coke. And then the kind of Coke, he was one of the first people to get Mexican Coke. He was a freak about it because Mexican Coke 
is, as everybody knows, superior to American. Yeah. <laughs> really? Oh, no, no comparison. They, they have, what, like 400 different recipes, and they're all catering to different regions of the, different of the world. And there's one in particular, the part where a, ba- a Baja's Mexican Coke is like the original Coke. Yeah. It was, it's just more expensive because it's the real real sugar. It's not the, the stuff, the refined. It's sugar, sugar, sugar. Sugar cane. Yeah, yeah. sugar cane. From the Better cane. than McDonald's? No, McDonald's is the best ever. Okay. McDonald's has a special recipe for Coke. Yeah. And, and some of them said, for, screw it, just give us the mass stuff at a vet. So you'll go to some McDonald's, especially ones where the Coke's given by the people behind. And then they have a special mix, and they have a, a special a, a extra amount of syrup that they put in. They put in more syrup. Secret Coke. Oh, no. And I literally, there are <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people who literally know the McDonald's that serve the special McDonald's soda. And it's not every McDonald's because it costs more. It's actually quite a bit more. It's like three or four cents a drink, which sounds yeah. like nothing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in the milk. overall mix of all that soda, they'll go screw it. The damn customers don't know. There was one McDonald's in, in Baltimore where I stopped going when they changed it. Mm. <laughs> and I used to like drive 20 minutes. And I don't think they ever figured it out. Yeah, no, it, you know. I know, it's a little sad, isn't it? How did you find out that you just tasted the change? Oh, yeah, I tasted it. And I, I also knew. I mean, I would you always be looking. I look, yeah. I didn't have, oh, I could taste it. I don't need to ask. <laughs> and if you're at self-serve, it's not that. Because once you go to self-serve, then they just go to the traditional mixes. So it had to come from the back. Okay. And there's a couple of other restaurants that did that deal with McDonald's. Chick-fil-A did it for the longest time. And then I don't know what happened. I don't really? know if they paid. Yeah, because there just became too many people who hadn't been. Here, here's what it came from. The people who ever had an original Coke from the soda fountain, from the yeah. ice cream parlor, yeah. knew that you could say to the man with the hat, and especially if you had the seltzer really cold, you'd say, give me an extra shot of the syrup. And he would just go, this, this. And I mean, you'd be flying for the whole day. And it just tasted freaking great. But, you know, each jolt of the syrup. You know, he's, you know, if it was 12 cents for the Coke, he'd say, you know, 15 right. or whatever. It's like extra hot fudge on your hot fudge at the basket. It's like lobby. an extra shot. And you're it's like an extra shot of whatever. Absolutely. <laughs> and there you have it. We are passionate about all things here at Our American Stories. And with that, we now go to our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, with his report on the top 10 sodas in the world. There's finally an official and seemingly unbiased ranking of sodas, or soda pop, or pop, depending on what part of the country you're in. And the results might surprise you. The top dog should be obvious, but its longtime rival is strangely much lower on the list than expected. Bear in mind, this is as legitimate as possible. We didn't poll a handful of people waiting for the subway. It's a poll that just closed on Ranker.com, and over 185,000 people voted. It's pretty hard to dispute these statistics. Here's a look at the top ten, starting with the tenth position and working our way to the coveted spot of number one. At number ten is Pepsi Cola. Coke and Pepsi are the same thing. Wake up, people. We always assumed that Pepsi was almost as popular as Coke, but according to this poll, it's not even in the same ballpark. Pepsi was first named Brad's Drink in New Bern, North Carolina in 1893 by Caleb Bradham, who made it at his drugstore where the drink was sold. It was renamed Pepsi-Cola in 1898 after the root of the word dyspepsia and the cola nuts used in the recipe. The original recipe also included sugar and vanilla. 
Bradham sought to create a fountain drink that was appealing and would aid in digestion and boost energy. In 1903, Bradham moved the bottling of Pepsi-Cola from his drugstore to a rented warehouse. That year, he sold 7,968 gallons of syrup. The next year, Pepsi was sold in six-ounce bottles, and sales increased to 19,848 gallons. In 1931, at the depth of the Great Depression, the Pepsi-Cola company entered bankruptcy, in large part due to financial losses incurred by speculating on the wildly fluctuating sugar prices as a result of World War I. On three separate occasions between 1922 and 1933, the Coca-Cola Company was offered the opportunity to purchase the Pepsi-Cola Company, and it declined on each occasion. Here's an old Pepsi commercial from the time when the drink... Only cost one nickel. Pepsi Cola hits the spot. Twelve full ounces, that's a lot. Twice as much for a nickel, too. Pepsi Cola is the drink for you. Thirsty people everywhere prefer ice cold Pepsi Cola. And because it's light, it refreshes without filling. Charlie, be sociable. I am, Kay. Pepsi is a favorite of thirsty people from Maine to Hawaii, from Alaska to Florida. Charlie. It's perfect for parties or picnics, so serve Pepsi to your guests. That's helpful, but... This is the sociable part. Keep plenty of Pepsi ice cold and ready. Remember, it goes fast because everybody likes Pepsi. Singing still sounds more inviting. At number nine of the world's most popular soda pop drinks, Canada Dry Ginger Ale. It's a brand of soft drinks owned since 2008 by the Texas-based Dr. Pepper Snapple Group. For over a century, Canada Dry has been known for its ginger ale, though the company also manufactures a number of other soft drinks and mixers. Although Canada Dry originated in Canada, it's now produced in many countries, including Mexico, Colombia, the Middle East, Europe, and Japan. The dry in the brand's name refers to it not being very sweet, as in a dry wine. Here's an early Canada Dry ginger ale commercial from the 1960s. Somebody saw the shot, and she's got a cold drink for you. Canada Dry Ginger Ale. One gulp is for thirst, the other gulps are for kicks. Come in on a wave and end up at a party. It's going to be a good evening. Canada Dry Ginger Ale. One gulp is for thirst, the other gulps are for kicks. In at number eight of the most popular sodas in the world is Cherry Coke. Long before its official introduction in 1985, many diners and drugstore soda fountains dispensed an unofficial version of Cherry Coke by adding cherry-flavored syrup to the Coca-Cola mix. Coca-Cola tested Cherry Coke on an audience in 1982 at the World's Fair. It then entered mainstream production during the summer of 1985. Cherry Coke, which by 2007 had been renamed Coca-Cola Cherry in the U.S. and some other countries, was the third variation of Coca-Cola at the time, the others being Coca-Cola Classic and Diet Coke and the first Flavored Coke. Listen to this terribly 80s Cherry Coke commercial. At number seven is Orange Crush. In 1911, Clayton J. Howell, president and founder of the Orange Crush Company, partnered with Neil C. Ward and incorporated the company. Ward made the recipe for Orange Crush, 
Howell was not new to the soft drink business, having earlier introduced Howell's orange juice julep. Soft drinks of the time often carried the surname of the inventor along with the product name. Howell sold the rights to his name in conjunction with his first brand. Therefore, Ward was given the honors. Crush was first premiered as Ward's Orange Crush. And originally, Orange Crush included orange pulp in the bottles, giving it a fresh, squeezed illusion, even though the pulp was added rather than remaining from squeezed oranges. Pulp has not been in the bottles for decades. The band R.E.M. even titled one of their popular songs after the fizzy drink, though I'm not entirely sure of the point these lyrics are trying to make. This is Our American Stories and more on the top 10 sodas in the world and more with Jesse's report. American stories, and when we left off, our producer Jesse was ripping through the top 10 sodas in the world according to a poll of over 180,000 people. We now return to this special report. In at number six of the most popular sodas on the planet is Seven Up. When someone brings up soda rivalries, many people's minds immediately head towards Coke and Pepsi. But the rivalry between Sprite and 7-Up is pretty good, too. 7-Up was created by Charles Leeper Grigg, who launched his St. Louis-based company, the Howdy Corporation, in 1920. Grigg came up with the formula for a lemon-lime soft drink in 1929. The product, originally named Bib Label Lithiated Lemon Lime Soda, oof, that's a tongue twister, was launched two weeks before the Wall Street crash of 1929. It contained lithium citrate, a mood-stabilizing drug, until 1948. It was one of a number of medicine products popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Its name was later shortened to 7-Up Lithiated Lemon Soda, before being further shortened to just 7-Up by 1936. Westinghouse bought up 7-Up in 1969 and sold it in 1978 to Philip Morris, who then, in 1986, sold it to a group led by the investment firm Hicks & Haas. 7-Up merged with Dr. Pepper in 1988. Cadbury Schweppes bought the combined company in 1995. The Dr. Pepper Snapple Group was spun off from Cadbury Schweppes in 2008. Originally branded as the Uncola, 7-Up made some pretty funny commercials back in the 1980s. Her first Uncola. The moment in every girl's life when she leaves her childhood of one cola after another cola behind and begins a lifetime of the fresh, clean taste of 7-Up. A lifetime of security in the knowledge that the Uncola is never too sweet, that the Uncola has everything a cola's got and more besides. The Uncola forever. In at number five of the world's most popular soda pop drinks 
is A&W Root Beer. Root Beer, along with sarsaparilla, birch beer, and cream soda, is one of the most old-timey sodas available. Sipping it brings drinkers back to simpler times. Plus, it's just begging to be used to make a root beer float. On June 20th, 1919, Roy W. Allen opened a roadside root beer stand in Lodi, California, using a formula he purchased from a pharmacist. He soon opened stands in Stockton, California, and five stands in nearby Sacramento, home of the country's first drive-in featuring tray boys for curbside service. In 1920, Allen became partners with Frank Wright, and the two combined their initials, calling their product A&W Root Beer. Here's a funny A&W Root Beer commercial from a few years back where a guy is at a job interview getting the name of his potential new boss completely wrong. Mr. Dumbass... I can bring a lot to dumbass and dumbass. I'm a go-getter. Dumbass material all the way. So, am I your man, Mr. Dumbass? The name is Dumas. That's pretty thick-headed. But nothing compared to the rich, thick, frosty mug taste of an A&W root beer. With A&W, it's good to be thick-headed. What a dumbass. Number four for the most popular soda drinks in the world is Mountain Dew. Mm. Tennessee bottlers Barney and Alan Hartman developed Mountain Dew as a mixer in the 1940s. Soft drinks were regional in the 1930s, and the Hartmans had difficulty in Knoxville obtaining their preferred soda to mix with liquor, preferably whiskey, so the two men developed their own. Originally a 19th century generic term for whiskey, especially Highland Scotch whiskey, the name was trademarked for the soft drink in 1948. The Tip Corporation of Marion, Virginia bought the rights to Mountain Dew, revising the flavor and launching it in 1961. In 1964, PepsiCo purchased the Tip Corporation and thus acquired the rights to Mountain Dew. Here's the very first Mountain Dew TV commercial from 1966 that promises the drink will tickle your innards. Beautiful Sal was a stone-hearted gal, refusing to bill or to coo. But Clem was right smart, he appealed to her heart with that gal getting good old Mountain Dew. Yahoo! Mountain Dew! Mountain Dew will tickle your innards, cause there's a bang in every bottle. At the county turkey shoot, cause Luke weren't worth a hoot. He was hopeless till he finally took the cue. Yahoo! Mountain Dew! Now he shoots off the cuff, gets more than enough after nipping at that good old Mountain Dew. Sure is shooting, there's a bang in every bottle of our delicious soft drink, Mountain Dew. It'll tickle your innards. And at number three of the best sodas in the entire world is Sprite, the winner of the Lemon Lime Soda War. Sprite is the go-to citrus beverage for most people. It's a colorless, caffeine-free, lemon-lime flavored soft drink created by the Coca-Cola Company. It was first developed in West Germany in 1959 and was introduced in the United States as a competitor to 7-Up. Over the years, Sprite has had 17 variations worldwide, including Sprite Zero, Sprite Remix, Blast, Ice, Duo, Super Lemon, Lemon Lime Herb, Recharge, 3G, Cranberry, Six Mix, and Sprite Tropical. Sprite can also help relieve stomach pains such as those caused by gassy buildup. <laughs> Carbonated beverages such as Sprite can cause you to burp and expel some of the gas, thus relieving you of your stomach pain. 
You're someone special, you're striving for more Trying to do things better than before You're trying harder, you're reaching so tall You're drinking Sprite and you're giving it your all You found more in Sprite You found lime and you found more in you Number two for the most popular soda pops in the universe is the great and grand Dr. Pepper. One of my personal favorites. The U.S. Patent Office recognizes December 1st, 1885 as the first time Dr. Pepper was served. It was introduced nationally in the United States at the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition as a new kind of soda pop made with 23 flavors. Its introduction in 1885 preceded the introduction of Coca-Cola by one year. It was formulated by Brooklyn-born pharmacist Charles Alderton in Morrison's Old Corner Drugstore in Waco, Texas. To test his new drink, he first offered it to store owner Wade Morrison, who also found it to his liking. Alderton gave the formula to Morrison, who named it Dr. Pepper. As with Coca-Cola, the formula for Dr. Pepper is a trade secret, and allegedly the recipe is kept as two halves in safe deposit boxes in two separate Dallas banks. A persistent rumor since the 1930s is that the drink contains prune juice, but the official Dr. Pepper frequently asked questions refutes this claim. A woman by the name of Donna Lauren was the one and only Dr. Pepper girl from 1963 to 68. She was signed to a long-term contract with the soft drink company to sing all television and radio commercials, do all magazine and billboard advertising, representing them in every capacity, sometimes sharing the spotlight with American Bandstand's Dick Clark. Here she is in this vintage Dr. Pepper TV commercial from 1964. Hi, I'm Donna Lauren. Many words can describe Dr. Pepper. Here's how our caveman friends do it. Now that you all have a bottle of Dr. Pepper, I want you to take a taste and then give me your reaction in one word. Remember now, one word. Labor. Lift. Light. Lively. Zonk. The soft drink with zonk? Well, that's one way to praise Dr. Pepper. Here's mine. Good times begin with Dr. Pepper. Distinctively different, Dr. Pepper. Not a cola or a root beer, a light to lively taste that you cheer. The lift is great, the flavor fine, it's Dr. Pepper time. And who could forget this scene from Forrest Gump when Forrest meets President Kennedy at the White House? I must have drank me about 15 Dr. Peppers. Congratulations. How do you feel? I gotta pay. <laughs> I believe he said he had to go pee. And here it is. The number one spot. The big kahuna. The top place in the universe. The best soda in the galaxy. is Coca-Cola. Looks like we made it. Big surprise. The winner and champion still. Originally intended as a medicine, it was invented in the late 19th century by John Pemberton and was bought out by businessman Asia Griggs Candler, whose marketing tactics led Coca-Cola to its dominance of the world soft drink market throughout the 20th century. The drink's name refers to two of its original ingredients, which were cola nuts, the source of caffeine, and coca leaves. 
The current formula of Coca-Cola remains a trade secret, although a variety of reported recipes and experimental recreations have been published. The Coca-Cola company produces concentrate, which is then sold to licensed Coca-Cola bottlers throughout the world. The bottlers, who hold exclusive territory contracts with the company, produce the finished product in cans and bottles from the concentrate in combination with filtered water and sweeteners. The bottlers then sell, distribute, and merchandise Coca-Cola to retail stores, restaurants, and vending machines throughout the world. Here's a vintage Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola TV ad from the early 1950s. There are times every day as you work or you play when a pause would be welcome to you. And it's then that you find the bright spot in your mind that only a Coke will do. 50 million times a day at home, at work, or on the way. There's nothing like a Coca-Cola, nothing like a Coke. Nothing. And that's our look at the top 10 sodas in the world, according to a poll of over 185,000 people. From Pepsi at number 10 all the way to the top spot at number 1, the original Coca-Cola is the reigning champion. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Our American Stories, and it's graduation season, and we wanted to highlight some commencement speeches that have been given over the years, some great ones. One really, really bad one that's so bad it's funny. Yeah. That's right. And some of our best, Denzel Washington, Admiral McRaven's at the University of Texas, where, by the way, he now runs the whole University of Texas system. And that one turned into a book called Make Your Bed. And that's how it started off. If you want to do good in the world, well, start by making your bed. Robert De Niro's was classic, and he gave it at NYU. Steve Jobs at Stanford, that was quite a few years back, but we play it every year because I don't think it gets better than that. And Will Farrell's hilarious USC. (laughs) Hey, shut up, Chuck. That, by the way, is Chuck Berry. We love playing that, that little outtake and Joe, Jesse's always quick on the uptake on the outtake of Chuck Berry that's right and now we're going to go to Conan O'Brien's commencement speech from Dartmouth College in the year 2011 here he starts off complaining about the weather and wondering why he was chosen to come and speak at all I've been living in Los Angeles for two years and I've never been this cold in my life <laughs> I will pay anyone here $300 for Gore-Tex gloves. Anybody. I'm serious. I have the cash. Before I begin, I must point out that behind me sits a highly admired president of the United States and decorated war hero. While I, a cable television talk show host, has been chosen to stand here and impart wisdom. I pray I never witness a more damning example of what is wrong with America today. (laughs) Graduates, faculty, parents, relatives, undergraduates, and old people that just come to these things. Good morning and congratulations to the Dartmouth class of 2011. 
Today, you have achieved something special, something only 92% of Americans your age will ever know, a college diploma. That's right, with your college diploma, you now have a crushing advantage over 8% of the workforce. I'm talking about dropout losers like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and Mark Zuckerberg. Incidentally, speaking of Mr. Zuckerberg, only at Harvard would someone have to invent a massive social network just to talk with someone in the next room. My first job as your commencement speaker is to illustrate that life is not fair. For example, you have worked tirelessly for four years to earn the diploma you'll be receiving this weekend. That was great. And Dartmouth is giving me the same degree for interviewing the fourth lead in Twilight. Deal with it. Another example that life is not fair, if it does rain, the powerful rich people on stage get the tent. Deal with it. Conan goes on to talk about how thankful he is to be there. Though some of you may see me as a celebrity, you should know that I once sat where you sit. Literally. Late last night, I snuck out here and sat in every seat. I did it to prove a point. I'm not bright, and I have a lot of free time. But this is a wonderful occasion. It's great to be here in New Hampshire, where I am getting an honorary degree and all the legal fireworks I can fit in the trunk of my car. You know, New Hampshire's such a special place. When I arrived, I took a deep breath of this crisp New England air and thought, wow, I'm in this state that's next to the state where Ben and Jerry's ice cream is made. But don't get me wrong, I take my task today very seriously. When I got the call two months ago to be your speaker, I decided to prepare with the same intensity many of you have devoted to an important term paper. So late last night, I began. I drank two cans of Red Bull, snorted some Adderall, played a few hours of Call of Duty, and then opened my browser. I think Wikipedia put it best when they said Dartmouth College is a private Ivy League university in Hanover, New Hampshire, United States. Thank you, and good luck. Now, before Conan came to give his speech, he decided to do some research about the school. He also complains about the podium that he's using that is just one huge fake tree stump. This college was named after the second Earl of Dartmouth, a good friend of the third Earl of UC Santa Cruz and the Duke of the Barbizon School of Beauty. Your school motto is Vox Clementis and Deserto which means voice crying out in the wilderness. This is easily the most pathetic school motto I have ever heard. (laughs) Apparently it narrowly beat out silently weeping in thick shrub (laughs) and whimpering in moist leave without pants. Your school color is green. And this color was chosen by Frederick Mather in 1867 because, and this is true, I looked it up, quote, it was the only color that had not been taken already. I cannot remember hearing anything so sad. Dartmouth, you have an inferiority complex, and you should not. 
you have graduated more great fictitious Americans than any other college. Meredith Gray of Grey's Anatomy. Pete Campbell from Mad Men. Michael Corleone from The Godfather. Now I know what you're going to say, Dartmouth. You're going to say, well, we've got Dr. Seuss. Well, guess what? We're all tired of hearing about Dr. Seuss. Face it, the man rhymed fafloozle with susnoozle. In the literary community, that's called cheating. Your insecurity is so great, Dartmouth, that you don't even think you deserve a real podium. I'm sorry, what the hell is this thing? It looks like you stole it from the set of Survivor in Nova Scotia. Seriously, it looks like something a bear would use at an AA meeting. No, Dartmouth, you must stand tall. Raise your heads high and feel proud. Because if Harvard, Yale, and Princeton are your self-involved, vain, name-dropping older brothers, you are the cool, sexually confident, lacrosse-playing younger sibling who knows how to throw a party and looks good in a down vest. And when we come back, more from Conan O'Brien's commencement speech at Dartmouth College in 2011. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Conan O'Brien's commencement speech at Dartmouth College in 2011. Here, Conan decides to make his speech more memorable. He suggests some changes. You are a great school, and you deserve a historic commencement address. That's right, I want my message today to be forever remembered, because it changed the world. To do this, I must suggest groundbreaking policy. Winston Churchill gave his famous Iron Curtain speech at Westminster College in 1946. JFK outlined his nuclear disarmament policy at American University in 1963. Today I would like to set forth my own policy here at Dartmouth. I call it the Conan Doctrine. Under the Conan Doctrine, all bachelor degrees will be upgraded to master's degrees. All master's degrees will be upgraded to PhDs. And all MBA students will be immediately transferred to a white-collar prison. (laughs) Under the Conan Doctrine, Winter Carnival will become Winter Carnival and be moved to Rio. Clothing will be optional, all expenses paid by the Alumni Association. Your nickname, The Big Green, will be changed to something more kick-ass, like the Jade Blade. The Seafoam Avenger, or simply Limezilla. The D-Plan and Quarter System will finally be updated to the 164th system. Semesters will last three days. Students will be encouraged to take 48 semesters off. They must, however, be on campus during their sophomore 4th of July. And finally, under the Conan Doctrine, all commencement speakers who shamelessly pander with cheap inside references designed to get childish applause, will be forced to apologize to the greatest graduating class in the history of the world, Dartmouth Class of 2011 rules! And of course, he has some advice for both graduates and parents. Well, today, I'm not going to waste your time with empty cliches. 
Instead, I'm going to give you real practical advice that you will need to know if you're going to survive the next few years. First, adult acne lasts longer than you think. I almost canceled two days ago because I had a zit on my eye. Guys, this is important. You cannot iron a shirt while wearing it. Here's another one. If you live on ramen noodles for too long, you lose all feelings in your hands and your stool becomes a white gel. And finally, wearing colorful Converse high tops beneath your graduation robe is a great way to tell your classmates that this is just the first of many horrible decisions you plan to make with the rest of your life. Of course, there are many parents here, and I have real advice for them as well. Parents, you should write this down. Many of your children, you haven't seen them in four years. Well, now you're about to see them every day when they come out of the basement to tell you the Wi-Fi isn't working. If your child majored in fine arts or philosophy, you have good reason to be worried. The only place they are now really qualified to get a job is ancient Greece. Good luck with that degree. The traffic today on East Wheelock is going to be murder, so once they start handing out diplomas, you should slip out in the middle of the Ks. And, I have to tell you this, you will spend more money framing your child's diploma than they will earn in the next six months. It's tough out there, so be patient. The only people hiring right now are Panera Bread and Mexican drug cartels. Although he expresses it through humor, he does have some important and helpful things to tell the class, using his own failure... As an example, I came here today because, believe it or not, I actually do have something real to tell you. Eleven years ago, I gave an address to a graduating class at Harvard. I have not spoken at a graduation since because I thought I had nothing left to say. But then 2010 came. And now I'm here 3,000 miles from my home because I learned a hard but profound lesson last year and I have to share it with you. In 2000, I told graduates, don't be afraid to fail. Well, now I'm here to tell you that though you should not fear failure, you should do your very best to avoid it. (laughs) Nietzsche famously said, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What he failed to stress is that it almost kills you. (laughs) Disappointment stings, and for driven, successful people like yourselves, it is disorienting. What Nietzsche should have said is, whatever doesn't kill you makes you watch a lot of Cartoon Network and drink mid-price Chardonnay at 11 in the morning. Now, by definition, commencement speakers at an Ivy League college are considered successful. But a little over a year ago, I experienced a profound and very public disappointment. I did not get what I wanted, and I left a system that had nurtured and helped define me for the better part of 17 years. I went from being in the center of the grid to not only off the grid, but underneath the coffee table that the grid sits on, lost in the shag carpeting that is underneath the coffee table supporting the grid. It was the making of a career disaster and a terrible analogy. (laughs) But then something spectacular happened. Fog-bound, with no compass and adrift, I started trying things. I grew a strange cinnamon beard. I dove into the world of social media. I started tweeting my comedy. I threw together a national tour. I played the guitar. I did stand-up, wore a skin-tight blue leather suit, recorded an album, made a documentary, and frightened my friends and family. (laughs) Ultimately, I abandoned all preconceived perceptions of my career path and stature and took a job on basic cable with a network most famous for showing reruns 
along with sitcoms created by a tall black man who dresses like an old black woman. I did a lot of silly, unconventional, spontaneous, and seemingly irrational things. And guess what? With the exception of the blue leather suit, it was the most satisfying and fascinating year of my professional life. (laughs) To this day, I still don't understand exactly what happened, but I have never had more fun, been more challenged, and this is important, had more conviction about what I was doing. How could this be true? Well, it's simple. There are few things more liberating in this life than having your worst fear realized. I went to college with many people who prided themselves on knowing exactly who they were and exactly where they were going. At Harvard, five different guys in my class told me they would one day be president of the United States. Four of them were later killed in motel shootouts. The other ones briefly hosted Blue's Clues before dying senselessly in yet another motel shootout. Your path at 22 will not necessarily be your path at 32 or 42. One's dream is constantly evolving, rising and falling, changing course. And finally, while failure is difficult, it may be the very thing that brings you success. The point is this. It is our failure to become our perceived ideal that ultimately defines us and makes us unique. It's not easy. But if you accept your misfortune and handle it right, your perceived failure can become a catalyst for profound reinvention. So at the age of 47, after 25 years of obsessively pursuing my dream, that dream changed. For decades in show business, the ultimate goal of every comedian was to host The Tonight Show. It was the holy grail. And like many people, I thought that achieving that goal would define me as successful. But that is not true. No specific job or career goal defines me, and it should not define you. In 2000, I told graduates to not be afraid to fail, and I still believe that. But today, I tell you that whether you fear it or not, disappointment will come. The beauty is that through disappointment, you can gain clarity, and with clarity comes conviction and true originality. Many of you here today are getting your diploma at this Ivy League school because you have committed yourself to a dream and worked hard to achieve it. And there is no greater cliche in a commencement address than follow your dream. Well, I'm here to tell you that whatever you think your dream is now, it will probably change. And that's okay. Four years ago, many of you had a specific vision of what your college experience was going to be and who you were going to become. And I bet today most of you would admit that your time here was very different from what you imagined. Your roommates changed, your major changed. But through the good, and especially the bad, the person you are now is someone you could never have conjured in the fall of 2007. I've told you many things today, most of it foolish, but some of it true. I'd like to end my address by breaking a taboo and quoting myself from 17 months ago. At the end of my final program with NBC, Just before signing off, I said, work hard, be kind, and amazing things will happen. Today, receiving this honor and speaking to the Dartmouth class of 2011 from behind a tree trunk, I have never believed that more. Thank you very much and congratulations. And there you have it, Conan O'Brien's address. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, commencement month, all month long, month of May, much of the month of June. We'll be playing the best, the worst, some from famous folks, a couple from just high school kids who hit it out of the park. 
and one college professor whose speech was just so terrible. Jesse's going to have to add the rim shots, and this will be one of the few times we'll actually be laughing at somebody on the show because, well, you just have to. This is Our American Stories. Stories where we share classic American stories about just about every walk of life from sports to art to history to music and to public policy. And today, well, we love talking about I think the only thing we talk about when we're not talking about the show is food. And so we figured, why not make that part of the show? It's our favorite part of life. And for many Americans, eating is just a joy and it's a social activity and it's an art and it's so much more. And so, well, that's what we're doing now, and we want to try and bring any number of features about food. And, well, one of the stories we wanted to hone in on is the story of Arnie Morton, the founder of Morton's, and that's the Steakhouse. And this is our first in our Food Life series. And we'll be taking a deeper look at 25 of the greatest food innovators and their life's work. And later, 25 of the greatest food innovations. So over the next year, um, that's what we're going to be digging into. Food innovators, food innovations. And so we're fortunate to have Peter Yaffe, who is an industry pro for 37 years and who heads up Food Life Brands. And he brought us this story about a man he once worked for, the, the, the legendary Arnie Morton. Take it away, Peter. started working for Arnie fresh out of school, he dropped me right into the deep end of the pool. Ah! He walked me into a room of managers going through each line of a profit and loss statement. And while those seasoned staff probably wondered who in the world this young kid was, Arnie cared enough about who I was. He cared enough to teach me the difference between running a restaurant and running a bankruptcy in waiting that happened to serve food. This difference led him to want to know the comings and goings of literally every single one of his stakes. If the night started with 100 New York strips and the cash register showed they sold 70, Arnie wanted to be sure there were 30 left in the cooler. So many people today think running a great restaurant is all about having hip food, but Arnie knew what all the great ones do. you got to have business discipline. In a steakhouse, which had six locations at the time, each serving some 200 people a night, Arnie wanted to give his diners a great time while still making good money. To achieve both, he put his restaurants in out-of-the-way basements. Now, other restaurateurs might balk at the lack of street visibility, but Arnie knew better because he learned better. In his earlier days, he ran exclusive members-only key clubs and saw how happy customers became fans. 
infectious fans who wanted to convert their friends into fans, creating overflow crowds much more than any fancy location or branding could. Seeing this, Arnie never hesitated to pay rock bottom rent to have more money to make more customers have a great time. Even if these great times were in a tucked away basement, heck, it almost made it more fun. It was different. This combination of business sense, creativity, and most importantly, hospitality is what made Arnie Morton a legend. A link in a long family chain of extraordinary restaurateurs. Here's Arnie's daughter, Amy Morton, who worked with Arnie for years and is today the owner-operator of the Found Kitchen and Social House near Chicago. He is third generation, and I would be fourth generation restaurateur if we consider the fact that his great-grandfather was known as the pharmacist, a.k.a. bootlegger, in their neighborhood. And then my dad's dad, Morton C. Morton, had a fantastic restaurant down um, several of them, actually. The one When they moved from one, one burned down, um, one my dad was even partners in when he got older, which were the original Morton's restaurants um, down the South Siders all knew them, and still people today are always, always bringing them up. Even with restaurants running through Arnie's blood, success was never guaranteed for him. When he opened the first Morton Steakhouse on State Street, Chicago, he really wanted to show folks something new, something great. But the weather was not in a cooperative mood. Something not so great when you're talking about a city like Chicago. For days on end, days that felt like years, few people came into the restaurant that Arnie and his team had poured so much into because the snow poured even greater. A snowstorm so great that even Chicagoans stayed barricaded in their homes. One of the opening assistant managers, now the general manager of the original Chicago Mortons, Rocky Mayra, vividly remembers these early days. Once they opened Mortons on uh, December 21st, 1978, the place was kind of slow. So once they started getting busy, that was the second week of February, because Frank Sinatra came in the restaurant. That was a Friday night. And it was all over the newspaper that Frank Sinatra went to a new restaurant called Morton's. And our phone started ringing. It was a newspaper. It was a radio station and TV station. That's when it happened. You know, since then, we are busy every night. Chicago, Chicago, that title in town. Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around. Okay, we've seen this before countless times. A celebrity pops into a new restaurant and gets a spike in business. But Morton's nurtured that fleeting attention into becoming a Chicago mainstay. On why it did, Chicago dining legend Richard Melman of Lettuce Entertain You Restaurants once said, Arnie was in his glory. It was fun to go there because Arnie ran the place. Arnie's daughter Amy and longtime manager Rocky remember the same energy and commitment to his customers. My dad would light up when the restaurant opened and he would be on the door. And he was an old school operator. He seated every guest. And I worked for him and with him for years up at his place in Highland Park, Arnie's North. And whether it was downtown or in Highland Park, wherever we were working together, he'd say, Aim, time to unlock the doors. And then he'd say, It's Showtime. In those days, there were only, I think, two of the steakhouses. It was Gene and Georgette's and Eli's steakhouse. 
And Ani has a great concept, you know, and I don't know if you remember or not, we used to have a, the whole menu on a cart. We used to roll the cart to a table and show them, and that was nice show and tell, and people used to like that. So, a lot of restaurants copied that concept, but Ani was the first one to start that one. He wanted to give them the best product at the best price and give them a big quantity. That's why, you know, because we look at our menu, our steaks are from 16 ounces to 24 ounces steaks, and our baked potatoes a pound to pound and a half, give a huge salad. So that was an honest concept over there, because give them the value. Arnie knew how to work a room like no one else, but his charm went well beyond face-to-face. People in marketing today talk about brands going viral so much that it's cliched. But Arnie's marketing genius created that sort of buzz back in the days birds were the only things that tweeted. He came up with a way to put his restaurants on the map by leaving them off of any map. When he opened Morton's here in Chicago, uh, and in all of the first uh, dozen Morton's, they were all located in basements. So the original Morton's that was here at 1050 North State Street was in a basement, no signage. They didn't even list the phone number with 411, and in those days that's how you got phone numbers, 411. You had to be in the know. That's the only way you could find out that the restaurant was there. And so people felt so important and so chic. The Morton Steakhouse Empire kept growing after that, today numbering some 70 restaurants all over the world. If you've ever dined in a Morton's and thought a lot of the staff seemed familiar, that's probably because they are. Our chef is there for 36 years. I have three bus boys. One is for 36, one 35, and one for 33 years. I have a lot of wait staffs at 20 years plus. This is wonderfully bizarre in an industry known for workers who come and go, but certainly no accident at Morton's. There's two reasons I think people stay places. One, because they feel good. They feel people care about them. And two, if you make money. So I think everybody really made a lot of money um, at Morton's. And I think it was really, really a family. This is Lee Habib. When we come back, more of this extraordinary life. Arnie Morton, our Food Life series with Peter Yaffe. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're spending some time talking about Arnie Morton, and this is the beginning of our Foods Life series with Peter Yaffe, and Peter knows a lot about the business, and by the way, we love people with the practical experience. I don't even ask people where they went to college. Who cares? Peter graduated from the College of Life, running restaurants all over this country, some of the great ones in Washington, D.C., and elsewhere and that's why peter's doing the series he knows this business and he knows the people and that's what we care about real life experience and what a story so far about arnie morton none of this stuff they would have taught anybody in business school don't list your number go in a basement so you can't be found yeah they're teaching that at harvard business school right as we speak and so where we pick this up is where we left it off this man's building an empire in chicago and what happens next let's go back to Peter Yaffe's report. 
Even though Morton's has changed ownership and Artie himself passed away in 2005, his hospitality and marketing savvy is still very much in the DNA. This is a tweet from a guy about to board a plane from Tampa to Newark. Hey, Morton's, can you meet me at Newark Airport with a porterhouse when I land in two hours, okay? Thanks. Smiley face. Peter Shankman was joking, but check it out. When he got off the plane, there was a guy in a tux with a steak and all the fixings. Somehow, Morton's Steakhouse figured out his flight information, drove more than 23 miles, and delivered his wish, and that's what was left over after the meal. Wow. This guy is a social media giant. This was a brilliant PR move by Morton's Steakhouse. It's all over the internet. We take for granted the classic American Steakhouse. It's now woven into our lives. But it's only that way because American originals like Arnie Morton made it that way. They led the way, and they led us there with their top-quality beef, giant portions, disciplined management, and refined service. In fact, when diners today visit Amy Morton's restaurant, they still pull her aside to reminisce about fond memories in her family's restaurants. Stories about my dad and, and my grandfather are really mostly people coming and and thanking me, reminding me how special these restaurants have been to them and their families, and that the Sunday night dinners, the very special occasions, the 25-year anniversaries, so many people's lives were touched by, by my dad. Artie's legacy as an innovator extends well beyond his restaurants. One of my strongest memories of working with Arnie involves a now legendary event Arnie created. You may be even one of the millions who visited it. Now the world's largest food festival, the Taste of Chicago. Hosted every summer since 1980, when Arnie Morton breathed it into life with purpose of enriching life itself. Which may sound bold, but if you've had Chicago food, you know exactly what I mean. Well, this particular summer day, I was working lunch rush when Arnie himself rushed in and told me to get my butt out to the taste. Yesterday! I thought about telling him there was nothing I could do about yesterday, but that well wouldn't have helped a bit. With the crisis he was facing today, one young assistant manager had accidentally put all the money taken for the day into a trash bag and then proceeded to lose the trash bag and so began a frantic search for a full bag of cash. We found it, and I found a new job flipping tenderloins in the summer heat until the steaks and I were both medium rare, warm red center. That little burst of unexpected excitement aside, you can imagine how much master level cat herding it took to get a bunch of competing restaurants, musicians, and Chicago politicians to get into the same room, much less agree to run a joint festival. But Arnie was the man, not just with the plan, but with the ability to execute. There'll be plenty to eat at this year's Taste of Chicago, but there's a feast of music each day, too. Tonight at 5.30 on the main stage, it's L.A. rocker Weezer. Thanks to Arnie, our own field correspondent, Alex Cortez, has some memories he'll never forget. One time I got to see Midnight Oil with my dad. It was a beautiful 4th of July afternoon, and it was just the two of us. Another time I got to see Leonard Skinner and Credence Clearwater Revisited with friends, and all of these were for free, by the way. Memories like these are one of many reasons why you'll find Arnie's name on an honorary street sign in Chicago. A legacy that spans so many businesses and decades, but it's all tied together by his magic touch with people. When Paramount Pictures released Grease in 1978, 
starring John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, they threw a two-day party with plenty of live music to kick off the movie in Chicago. One of those musicians, then 22-year-old Joe Cantafio, played both days and vividly remembers walking into the venue for the second day, one of Arnie's restaurants. We walk into to Morton's, and this older gentleman comes up, and he goes, Hey, you're the lead singer at Jade 50. And I was like, Yeah. He goes, I was there last night. He says, You're great. He sat and talked with us for about 20 minutes at this table. And so I, I finally asked him, and it was just so kind and open. And I finally asked him, you know, are you with Paramount Pictures? And he goes, no, I'm, I'm here with the restaurant. I said, oh, are you the manager? And he goes, I'm Arnie. I was blown away. I was like, this is the famous Arnie Morton that, you know, when, when you're a kid, you know, your parents would say, oh, we're going down to Morton's Steakhouse. And here he was, a very, very humble guy. But perhaps his clearest legacy of them all are his seven children, all of which chose to follow him. They all wound up in creative work, five of them directly in the restaurant business. Peter Morton founded the Hard Rock Cafe chain, and Pam, Michael, David, and Amy are all running top-tier restaurants across the country. Arnie used to joke that it puts a lot of pressure on the old man, on the failure of the family. In exploring some of food's greatest innovators, we would be failures if we started anywhere else. Arnie Morton, an American classic. And that was just a superb report. And it's so interesting to dig into the lives of these names, these iconic names that we know but don't at all. You know, we spent an hour on the man behind McDonald's, Ray Kroc. And if you get a chance, go to ouramericannetwork.org. What a story that is. I mean, in addition to lowering the price of food, giving us a wonderful thing called a, you know, a dollar hamburger and great French fries, um, he made a whole bunch of people multimillionaires. We also did Truett Cathy. And this is the first time we're doing some of the fancier dining spots. We're going to do it all. Peter, what stunned me was the, the length of time the, the staff stayed with him, 20 and 30 years. How did he do that, Peter? What an achievement. Well, you know, there was so much personal in, you know, the, the Rocky was obviously in the first location in Chicago, and Arnie was seen around there all the time. So they felt all that personal involvement, that that touch of his. And at the same time, I mean, it always comes down to, you know, the atmosphere and making money. So the place was hustle bustle. It was a great atmosphere. There were a lot of great customers. It was busy every night. You weren't standing around bored. And these people were leaving, like Amy said earlier in the show, with a lot of money. And, you know, great. Arnie was established one of the first great training programs in the industry where um, I believe the woman's name was Rhonda, and she would go from Morton's to Morton's and do all the training. And so, you know, when you're trained right and you have the crowds in the restaurant and you're making money, you know, it's that's utopia in the restaurant business. Yeah, but, you know, in a business known for turnover, Peter, um, obviously these guys made money, but Arnie wanted them to keep the money. I mean, in a certain level, Arnie was happy that they were making a good living, I would assume. No question about it. Arnie was was all the way through his blood a true entrepreneur, and he considered every waiter, every busboy an entrepreneur. And he, he, he loved that they were making money. He loved to see the counts were high and hear that everybody tipped out great. Yes, he was all about that. You know, if there's one thing, Peter, a takeaway for you, you know, you spent some time as a young man with him. What did he drill down into you that carried with you the rest of your life? 
Uh, what is that maybe one or two things that as a restaurateur, as a businessman, and frankly, just as a leader having to make tough calls every night and every day, what are those one or two things that really stuck with you over the years? I think the two things would one be the behind the scenes that the people that dined in all his restaurants never saw, that he was absolutely the most savvy, business-minded guy. He knew where every penny was all the time. You know, you pounded that P&L, and it was just every, every single line where there was an expense that could be improved or whatever he was on top of. He was the master of finance and of leases and all that. But at the same time, he was like a double personality. Then all of a sudden he's out on the floor, and that tough money guy was greeting and shaking hands with every person and showing, you know, that aggressive hospitality is really what it's all about in the business, making people feel at home. Not a manager walking up to your table saying, is everything okay? But a guy that made you feel like you belong where you were. And that's an odd thing to both be tough and fiscally prudent and have great discipline and also have that passion of almost an artist and an entertainer. And it's all wrapped around in the in the same guy, Peter. One last thought, maybe 15 or 30 seconds on this. He's always driving that P&L, but yet he's not skimping on the quality of the beef, is he? Not at all. Never. The best steaks there were. Arnie's famous line was, there are no original ideas in the restaurant business. It's just who steals them and make them better. And he always made them better. It was always top quality. Well, Peter, this is a delight. And we look forward. Actually, I'm just dying for a good steak right now. And we're dying to look forward, dying to and looking forward to more talk from our Food Life series with Peter Yaffe, our first very first installment, No Better Man, The Life of Arnie Morton, born in 1922, died on May 28th, 2005.